want to invite you now to take your Bibles. The most important thing you'll ever do any day of your life is to open the Word of God and read it and become aware of what God wants to say to you as He speaks through His Word. Hebrews chapter 11 is where we are for a while. We've been here a few weeks considering the subject of faith, what it is, a journey in faith. Hebrews chapter 11, if you will. Pray with me, please. Father, we ask now that the ministry of your Holy Spirit that is to take the inspired text and shed light upon it to our understanding. We pray for the ministry of illumination, of comprehension. And then we also pray that that same precious Holy Spirit would empower us to respond in faith and with obedience to all that we hear so that Jesus Christ might receive greater praise. We ask again in his name. Amen. Now this morning I want to place side by side two verses of Scripture. The first of which is found here in Hebrews 11, where we have been excavating the ground of truth in order to examine the foundation upon which any human being's relationship to God must stand. What is that foundation? It is faith. We seek to uncover the very essence of biblical faith. Hebrews 11.3 in our journey, I think, takes us down to the tap root of faith's beginnings. We find it in the soil of creation itself. Notice what the author says, Hebrews 11.3. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Things which are seen, like this solid desk, a sacred desk, was made in its origins. The author says, out of things that do not appear, that are invisible. The author of Hebrews is telling us that things we see are the visible evidence of an invisible power. What we see, he says, has been, quote, framed by the word of God. The Greek term for the English word framed in that phrase is katarizo. The visible world has been, according to that word, put together and with a certain order. Put together and completed by power and design. Gospel writers Matthew and Mark use this term to describe the disciples sitting in their boat, quote, mending or knitting together their nets. That's katarizo. Hebrews 10.5, the previous chapter there, 
uses the same word in the phrase that speaks of God preparing, knitting together a body for his only begotten son. It is a word used then in reference even to the incarnation of Christ. It would be a process of katarizo, a knitting together of the human body in the womb of a virgin whose name was Mary. The author of Hebrews is saying in a similar created way, creating way with power and design, everything that is seen was made by that which is the invisible power and design of God. The inspired poetry of the Hebrew psalmist gives us an equivalent term when he speaks of being fearfully and wonderfully made. He makes reference as being at one time the unformed substance, but knitting together in his mother's womb. That creation of life which most of us still unabashedly call a miracle, is the work of the invisible God. One of the first dear ladies that stepped into the sanctuary this morning came to me with joy in her face and she said, I am a great grandmother. (laughs) The miracle of life, the creating work of God. At the close of our study last Lord's Day, we indicated that The defining nature of biblical faith, the essence of it, has something to do with understanding the how. How the visible things that we see came to be in the first place. Uh, I called it beginner's faith. Last week, we went back only in reference to Genesis 1. We'll return there with a bit more consideration today. This is an important issue. Remember, we began to study Hebrews 11 by being told faith is something that has substance, something solid, something that provides evidence. And We asked the question at the end of the hour a week ago, which I'm simply picking up where we left off in this new study today. Do you believe it? Or do you have creating faith? (laughs) Do you believe that in six days God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them by the mere breath of his voice? The theologians have this undying affection for the Latin. When they speak of creation as the Bible teaches it, they use the term ex nihilo, literally meaning out of nothing. That things visible were not made by things already seen or existing, but rather were created ex nihilo, out of nothing. Nothing. It all began with, and God said, and it was so. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's the verse I wanted to put alongside of Hebrews 11.3. There it stands, Genesis 
1, 1. In the beginning, God created. It is the giant signpost where the journey to the cross of Christ must take its first step. That's the purpose of Genesis 1-1. It isn't to present uh, the science, to refute uh, what would become very late in human history. It would take, you know, our more recent generations to invent something sophisticated like evolution. But uh, the purpose of Genesis 1-1, which I want to demonstrate today, is not to simply tell us how things came to be, and we know that they did by merely the spoken word of God. We've said all of that. But what I have just said to you is much more to the point of the whole Bible, even as it begins with the words in the beginning, and that is it is the first giant signpost on the journey that is meant to lead to the cross of Christ. The faith that justifies the sinner before God, Hebrews says, is the faith that understands the true origin of the species. Let me put the two verses together again. You'll see how beautifully they fit. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One of this generation's great theologians who is now with the Lord was Professor John Gertzner. I had the great privilege in my life of sitting at his feet and learning biblical truth from uh, that faithful servant of God. Dr. Gertzner liked to tell the story concerning Arthur Schopenhauer, a famous 19th century philosophical pessimist. Schopenhauer did not always dress very well. More often, he looked like a disheveled bum. One day, as this pessimist sat in a park in Berlin, his appearance aroused the suspicion of a policeman. The policeman asked him who he thought he was. Schopenhauer philosophically replied, I wish to God I knew. And as Gerstner would point out, the only way Schopenhauer, any one of us, could have learned who he was would have been to find out from God. Would to God he knew, who in fact is a God who has revealed to us the nature of our human existence in the very first chapters of the book of the Bible, Genesis. Now, should the Lord tarry and you and I live long enough, or at least if you live long enough. <laughs> that was meant to be a lighthearted. Perhaps we will have together the thrill of moving through the book of Genesis together on Sunday mornings. But for now, of course, I must maintain a certain discipline by keeping focused on the subject at hand, which is understanding the nature of biblical faith. It is the faith chapter, Hebrews 11.3, that has taken us back to the roots of faith, Genesis 1.1. Here then, 
Let me put this proposition before you this morning. The biblical record on the matter of creation is the foundation upon which the journey of faith begins. Let me repeat that. The biblical record on the matter of creation is the foundation upon which the journey of faith begins. Such faith leads to a real Savior, a literal cross, and true salvation. If Genesis 1, you see, is merely an ancient Jewish myth, if Genesis 1 is some pre-scientific religious vision, which now, of course, we can no longer accept. If the words of Genesis 1 are only symbolism and not the first pages of actual human history, if the first book of the Bible is anything less than a literal reality, a statement of fact, then come on people, we would be a more honest people to simply dispose of all the rest of the Bible and lock the doors of this sanctuary forever. Last Lord's Day, I suggested to you that the existence of the first man whose name was Adam, that Adam must be as real as Christ, or there is no Savior, there is no good news for sinners, and there is no hope of anything beyond today's pain, tomorrow's fears, or the eternal rot of the grave. That's all that evolution or any other substitute for the book of Genesis could give you. Nothing for today's pain. Nothing to cope with the fears of tomorrow. And nothing lying ahead but the rot of the tomb. How pathetic. That's the majority view, however. Not only in our community, but around the world. Perhaps you remember how the Apostle Paul argued that if Christ did not literally, physically, rise from the dead, then all the sermons you poor people have had to endure are sermons preached in vain. Paul goes on to declare, and so is your faith vain if Christ be not literally, historically, bodily raised from the dead. What would you would have, what you would end up with, of course, is the opposite of Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. You would have a faith that is without substance and has no evidence to back up its supposed beliefs. Paul continues in that vein. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is 
worthless. Some of you might be thinking, why would the pastor at this point in my Christian life, that is your Christian life, after all these years, many of you attending church so faithfully, be taking such pains and spend more than 10 minutes in a sermon trying to define again the essence of faith? Because Paul is telling us that even when it comes to the matter of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, some hold a faith that is no faith at all. Some hold a faith that is empty and vain because they really do not believe in the resurrection bodily, physically, historically of Jesus Christ. I wonder if you're aware of that, that perhaps at this very hour, right here, in fact, in our own community and all around, pulpits are occupied by preachers who will speak of a virgin birth but not really believe that the Holy Spirit could conceive in a mother's womb. They will even preach Jesus as some kind of ethereal, mystical, and philosophical idea. And if they speak of resurrection life, it's only to point to a coming springtime and new starts in our lives. You've heard it watered down. Such faith is vain. But what I'm saying is there are other faiths. James takes up the issue, doesn't he, in his little epistle. He says, you say that you have faith. Oh, so many people I know will say, of course I have faith. James says, I need to know if it's the kind that saves, justifies the sinner. So I'm going to show you my faith. I'm going to show you substance and evidence. And unless you can do the same, James would also say, your faith is worthless. It is dead. And so are you. Uh, let's turn there for a moment to 1 Corinthians 15. The portion that I just referred to, this matter of Christ bodily being raised from the dead. And if not, then our faith be vain. We want to pick it up on the more positive note. 1 Corinthians 15, again, if you're using the Pew Bible, this text is on page 1139. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, the verses I alluded to just this moment ago are verses 12 through 19. And uh, you must admit, they present a rather dark and despairing portrayal, not of faith, but of unbelief. But uh, now consider the good news. The good news begins at verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. The divine interjection here. I love this little interjection, this little three-letter word, but. <laughs> when all is so dark and so brooding and, and, and faith is something that better be real or else all is vain and hopeless, the apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit pauses and then says, but... Now, Christ has been raised from the dead. Beloved, I take that as a statement of fact. He has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep, which includes me. When I fall asleep in the biblical sense of being dead, Christ's resurrection is the promise and hope of my own. 
But now I want you to read along carefully with me at verse 21. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22 is now very critical in all that we've said. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Adam must be for real if Christ is to be the Savior of sinners. Now, without having you turn to it, unless you wish, I want you to trust me to represent the truth as it is in Romans 5. I've just selected certain verses there in order to underscore what we have said thus far. Listen to the language of Paul in Romans 5, beginning at verse 10. Paul says, if while we were sinners, that is enemies to God, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Therefore, just as through one man's sin, through one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death reigned, he says, since Adam. Verse 13. Down to verse 17, or if you're not uh, reading along, just listen. It says at verse 17, for if by the transgression of one, this real man, Adam, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life, right standing with God. For as through the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. We've looked at several different proof text to support that proposition I gave you just a moment ago, that the biblical record on the matter of creation is the foundation upon which the journey of faith begins. Such faith that God created the heavens and the earth and that he formed out of the dust of the ground a being he would call Adam even as he breathed into the clay and that clay became a living soul. You must believe that if you are to secure your hope that the next Adam, or the scripture refers to as the second Adam, Christ, has come to be a real man who is the real Savior who died on a literal real cross to bring a true salvation. The book of Genesis, I say again, be not literally true. Then let me ask this question. What would be the point of next week's study if we move through Hebrews 11? Why would we want to study someone whose name is Abel? 
because Abel is either the real offspring of a man called Adam and his wife Eve, or Abel can't teach us a thing about real faith. If Adam did not literally exist as the first man, then neither could there be a son of Adam whose name is Abel, who is provided for us as the next example of the kind of faith that justifies sinners. Hebrews 11.4, there it is, by faith, Abel, offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, this Abel still speaks. There's a sermon in the life of Abel, and isn't it interesting It has to do with coming before God and being declared righteous. And yet Abel's story is told first not too long after the world itself is created. A little bit later in Hebrews 11, we'll take up, maybe he'll be worthy of a couple sermons, this man Abraham. After all, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans refers to him as the father of a faith that justifies. But all the way back in Genesis chapter 14, there is this strange figure of a person by the name of Melchizedek. Without going into a defense of my own position on this, I believe Melchizedek to be nothing less than a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity. And when Melchizedek addresses Abraham, in order to establish Abraham with a relationship to God based solely on faith, begins this way. Abraham, the God with whom you have to do, the God who will seemingly be making impossible promises to you, like he will be the father of many nations, even though Sarah's 99 years old. But Melchizedek would have Abraham first hear the message of Genesis 1. Melchizedek says, listen to me, Abraham. I have a message from God. He wants you to know he is the creator. He is the maker He is the possessor of heaven and earth. It's the God who brought everything that is into existence by a spoken word can do that. Then I guess he can cause the womb of Sarah to bear a child in old age. You see how important the doctrine of creation is to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now I have a few moments that remain this morning. I want you to fasten your seatbelts. I don't know if there really are any in the pew. We're going to go back to the future. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ He who is the object of justifying faith was actually the plan of God pre 
creation. In other words, for God to carry out what was his eternal purpose, he had no eternal plan, by the way, for this globe. The Bible tells us how it came into existence And the Bible dramatically tells us the world as we know it in terms of how it will go out of existence. The creation of a world and people in it was not the end goal. The object of justifying faith, Jesus Christ coming to be a savior, was actually the plan of God pre-creation. In other words, for God to carry out His grace magnifying, His mercy revealing, His Christ exalting plan for the purpose of displaying the glories of His own nature in the plan of salvation, He must Himself take the first step by creating the human stage upon which the drama of redemption must be played out. Our friend Shakespeare was no theologian, I assure you. But he had it right when he said, all the world is a stage and every man its actors. Now simply let the evidence of Scripture at this point speak for itself on the matter, but listen very carefully. Allow me to combine the following back to the future texts of Scripture. A few in Ephesians 1, a couple in 2 Timothy, and Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. Listen to Scripture. He, God, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according, why would He do it? According to the kind intention of His will. You ask me, why did He save me? Why did He save you? Just because He wanted to and He is God and he can do as he pleases. And so he exercised such kindness to those totally unworthy. Why? The scripture goes on to say, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, in Christ himself. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace. Listen to this. Which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now in time has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Then the Lord Jesus Christ himself identified in Revelation 13, 8, listen carefully, as the Lamb 
slain before the foundation of the world. I wonder if that's your view of creation. That this salvation we have through faith in Jesus Christ is so great a thing flowing from the eternal kind intention of God even before he created this earth, created this earth in order to bring this salvation into space and time, into reality. And nothing less than an actual, genuine, real, with substance, solid faith can bring together the eternal plan into the space and time dimension of our lives. When I say to you as we leave this place this morning, sinner, now that addresses all of you and myself, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm talking about something real. And if the passage of scripture goes on to say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. What do you conclude will be the consequences if you continue in unbelief? This is serious business, folks. This is the order of the day. Today is the day of a real salvation. Your sins are real. Your guilt is real. God's wrath is real. And hell is a literal place. And only a real Savior will do. And only a faith that has substance can justify I don't know how to get more practical and give you everyday application than that. Someone said to me recently, you teach so much theology, when are you going to get around to telling us something we can use on a Monday morning? You need salvation come Sunday. And if you don't have it by Monday morning, I can't think of anything more practical than getting on your knees and confessing yourself to be a sinner before Almighty God. But I'll give you a few Monday morning things as well. And then we'll leave. Four things. That's all I have time to give. And there's so much more to say. Lord Terry, same place, same time. Next week, you're welcome back. Number one. What we have said thus far, demonstrated from Scripture, is this. Adam's sin... Adam's sin, which has something to do with our own, Adam's sin did not thwart the plan of God. God never has a plan B. It was not a matter of God creating a beautiful paradise, the perfect, innocent man and woman, putting them there so he could enjoy them forever and ever and ever. And then they sinned, and so God had to come up with plan B. And he talks to his son about maybe he'd be willing to go and die on a cross. Nonsense. Jesus Christ was the lamb that was slain before the world was ever created. 
If Adam's sin could not thwart the plan of God, the good news here is, beloved, neither can your sin. Sin is not greater than God. Sin is not large enough for his grace is excessively bigger. For where sin abounds, grace superabounds. The second thing we have to observe, since this was God's eternal purpose, even before the world was made, is that man really does not bring anything to this plan of salvation other than his sin, which required it. Nothing else. Thirdly, it seems like as the story unfolds in Genesis that Satan and all the powers of hell could not keep God from his plan to justify sinners on the basis of faith alone. Early on, God gave us the object lessons as he took and killed animals, shedding blood to provide a covering for our first parents. You'd have to be pretty thick not to see the foreshadowing of the blood of the Lamb in that story, and that's in Genesis. And finally, since sin and Satan's power cannot prevail over, frustrate God's eternal purposes, then the one who has faith in Christ will most assuredly gain the kingdom which he has ordained even before the first day of creation. It was always in the mind of God to one day create the world. But why? Because it was always in the heart of God to put on display for his own glory the wonders of sovereign grace, the abundance of his everlasting mercy, and to give us something to forever be in awe of the depths and dimensions of his unconditional love. As we learned a few weeks ago, I close with these words, Soli Deo Gloria, all the glory to God alone.